Chapter Seven of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Seven: The Unexpected. To judge from the sound, a much merrier time than usual was being enjoyed in the parlors. Snatches of music not suggestive of worship, mingled with gay laughter, floated up to Mrs. Burnham over the broad staircase, serving to make Erskine restless and inattentive. He stopped frequently in the midst of his Bible lesson to ask, "'Whose voice was that? What do you suppose they laughed at then? Mama, do you think that they will sing that song in church tonight?' and dozens of kindred questions. It was painfully evident that the sounds of mirth below stairs were more congenial to his ear than the Bible story above. Finally came a gentle tap on their closed door, and the trim young girl whose duty it was to be always in readiness to do errands for everybody entered softly. Judge Burnham would like to have Master Erskine come downstairs for a little while, if you please. The little boy gave a merry spring from the hassock where he was kneeling, beside his mother, but she put out a detaining hand. Do you know for what, Kate? No, ma'am, he only said, tell Master Erskine to come to his papa in the back parlor. Mama, I must go, mustn't I? You said I must always go when papa called. There was a little quivering of the boy's chin. He was evidently much afraid that the promised pleasure would be spoiled. Still, his mother had no answer for him. Who are in the parlors, Kate? Indeed, I don't know, ma'am. Dr. Waitley is there, and Mr. Henderson, and I don't know who else. The music room seemed to be quite full. Mrs. Burnham repressed a little sigh, which she did not wish Kate to hear, and turned to the appealing eyes of her boy. Certainly you will go, dear, when Papa calls. But you will come back as soon as you can, will you not? Remember, Mama is all alone. He gave his gay little promise, too impatient to be gone, to stand still while the tender fingers brushed his curls, too much a baby to detect the pathos in those words, all alone. Kate was not deaf to them, however. She gave a swift, searching look at her mistress, and reported it in the cook's room that evening, as her opinion that there were a good many goings-on in this house that Mrs. Burnham did not like, and she didn't believe she was altogether happy with all her grand ways. And if Mrs. Burnham, careful as she believes herself to be, does not guard her size and her tell-tale face more carefully in the future, before she is aware, the kitchen of her own home not only, but many another kitchen will gossip about her household skeletons. She set the door wide open after Erskine had left her, feeling painfully the loneliness made so much more deep by the constant hum of conversation which went on below, and putting steadily back the inclination to bury her face in her hands and cry, in order to strain her ears to hear, if possible, what was being said or done to entertain Erskine. It was the first time her shielding care of him on the Sabbath had been interfered with. She had wondered sometimes over it, for his father was very fond of him, and delighted to hear his steady chatter whenever he had opportunity to entertain Papa. Now the interruption had come in the shape of a call to the parlor to join in the entertainment, or at least the amusement of Sunday guests. Ruth Erskine's father, long years before he was a Christian, had frowned upon any attempt to commonize the Sabbath day. 
he might read his newspapers, or, if an intricate question was before him, consult his great tomes of law, but he did these things decorously, in the quiet of his own study, and had not been in the habit of inviting even his most intimate friends to share his home on the Sabbath. Ruth had taken it for granted, without giving the matter any thought, that all gentlemen of culture were alike in this respect, and her husband's utter indifference to the recent innovations had been a revelation and an added pain to her. She saw very little, indeed, of Judge Burnham on Sundays now, and this, too, had been so gradual a process that she had not roused to it until it was an accomplished fact. Under one pretext and another, he was constantly excusing himself from accompanying her to morning service, and his afternoons were generally spent in the library, where he indulged himself in stray fragments from the current books and magazines, doing, he said, the only light reading for which his busy life gave him time. Ruth, who used to join him there, until she found that his constant interruptions and outbursts of laughter over Erskine's quaint remarks made it impossible for her to hold the child's attention to his Bible lesson, had herself set the fashion of going with the child to her room. At first she intended it for but a little while, but on her return to the library she so frequently of late found her husband absent in the parlors or walking about the grounds that she had dropped the custom of seeking him and remained all the afternoon in her room. He used to lounge in a little before dinner and have a frolic with Erskine, but for several Sundays he had been engaged in the parlor, and then had gone to town for an evening service, leaving his wife to absolute solitude after Erskine was sleeping. Occasionally Judge Burnham pronounced himself to be too indolent for the city, and then this husband and wife, who grew farther apart every day, got through a long evening as best they could. Judge Burnham, doing a little fragmentary reading for himself, and a good deal of yawning and sleeping, was generally the one to propose that they retire early, as he had a hard week before him. A good deal of this was genuine fatigue, for it was true that, as he grew older, he absorbed himself more and more in business, and Ruth heard it from many outside sources that her husband had taken very high rank in his profession. She mourned much over these wasted hours, but the time seemed to have gone by when she could do other than mourn. She had offered once to read aloud to him, and reminded him that he used to like her reading, but he answered laughingly, yet with that undertone of sarcasm which she now heard so much, that that was before such a great gulf fixed itself between their tastes, that he believed each had grown incapable of comprehending the other's literary tastes and she had felt too wounded to press the question, so they had continued in their separate ways. A second interruption came to her on this afternoon. Kate began, Dr. Waitley's compliments, and if it was agreeable, he would like to see her downstairs a few minutes. Ruth's face flushed deeply. She was at a loss to understand the meaning of this. Dr. Waitley was not an old friend. He was a comparatively new acquaintance, even of her husband. She had met him by accident one evening in the library, and had taken an instant dislike to his face and manner. Since that time his calls had been made almost entirely on Sabbaths. There could not be a shadow of professional excuse for his message, for although he was an M.D., Judge Burnham had laughingly remarked but a few days ago that he wore his title as an ornament rather than a badge of usefulness, 
and had added that he did not believe the man had sufficient energy ever to become a success in his profession. So, although her husband occasionally told Ruth that she grew paler every day, and ought to consult a physician, certainly Dr. Waitley would not be the chosen one. Had the gentleman observed her habitual absence from the parlor on Sundays, and boldly determined to oblige her to receive him? The thought made the lady so indignant that she almost sent an unexplained refusal. Still, he was her husband's guest. What ought she to do? Kate, she said abruptly, of the girl who was watching her curiously, is Judge Burnham in the parlor? Yes'm, it was he who sent the message. I thought you said it was from Dr. Waitley. Tell me exactly what was said, please. Why, Judge Burnham came to the door and spoke to me and said, Take Dr. Waitley's compliments to Mrs. Burnham, and say to her that he would like to see her in the parlor. That is every word, ma'am. Then you may ask Judge Burnham if he will be kind enough to come to my room for a moment. I wish to speak with him. He came immediately, and with an air of concern. Was anything wrong? Was she not feeling well? She waited for no preliminaries. Judge Burnham, will you tell me why Dr. Waitley wishes to see me at this time? Why, really, my dear, I am not sure that I can supply a motive beyond the obvious one that it is natural enough for a gentleman to ask to see the lady of the house. Does it strike you as such an unusual proceeding? Very unusual, indeed. Dr. Waitley has been here sufficiently often, I should suppose, to have discovered that I do not receive calls on Sunday. Upon my word, my dear Ruth, I do not believe it has ever dawned upon him. He is not of that development. I imagine it just occurred to him that the polite thing to do would be to ask for the privilege of paying his respects to Mrs. Burnham, and he immediately did so. Then could you not have done me the favor of explaining that this is not the day on which I receive guests? Her manner may have been cold and haughty. Indeed, on reflection, I am sure it was. She felt very much hurt. Whether the guest had intended it as an embarrassment or not, surely her husband was sufficiently conversant with her views to have shielded her had he chosen to do so. She remembered the days in which, thinking very differently from her, he would still have guarded her carefully from any annoyance that he could. I don't think he remembered them just then. He thought only that his wife was making herself very disagreeable about a small matter. He had a way of lifting his eyebrows and smiling slightly behind his gray mustache. It always irritated Ruth, that smile. It seemed to say to her, You have put yourself in a very foolish position, and the only thing left for you to do is to make your way out of it as gracefully as possible. He gave her at this moment that particularly irritating look and smile. Indeed, Mrs. Burnham, that is expecting almost too much of me. I do not pretend to be able to explain why my wife should consider it a sin to come down to her own parlor for a moment and say a courteous good afternoon to a friend of her husband's, with whom he has been conversing for the last half hour. The peculiar lens necessary for discovering the heinousness of an action like that, even when done on the Sabbath day, has been by nature denied me, and I must not be expected to rise to the height of understanding it. If you have ever so slight a headache, or are indisposed in any way, I will bear your regrets with what grace I can, but to enter into the metaphysics of the matter without a direct message from you, 
ought hardly to be expected of a sinner like myself. He expected her to turn from him in cold indignation, and he proposed to laugh at her a little, good-naturedly, of course, and then to descend the stairs and say to his guest that Mrs. Burnham was not feeling equal to seeing her friends that afternoon, and begged that the gentleman would kindly excuse her. He knew just how to do it, politely, cordially, and was not troubled by any conscience whatever in the matter. But his wife's nerves were too sore. She turned from him, indeed, and her face burned. But there were other feelings beside indignation, though enough of that element was present, or she would not have done what she did next. "'I beg your pardon,' she said. "'I did not know I was putting too heavy a strain on your courtesy and kindness.' I will give my message in person. She swept past him like a queen, and went swiftly down the stairs. He followed her, still smiling, the uppermost feeling on his mind being one of curiosity as to what she would do. His wife was a lady. What could she do except to receive her caller graciously, of course? What she did was to move with the manner of a princess down the long parlor to the alcove where Dr. Waitley stood by the piano. She acknowledged the presence of the younger guests only by a dignified inclination of the head as she went. Her voice was never clearer nor colder than when she said, Dr. Waitley, my husband wishes me to say to you in person that it is not my custom to receive my friends on the Sabbath day. It is a matter which is very well understood among all my personal friends. Should you care to call on me at any time during the week, it will be my pleasure to meet you but I am sure you will excuse me today. Judge Burnham was directly behind her, veiling his astonishment and chagrin as a well-trained man of the world can do. Ruth turned at once from the amazed, not to say embarrassed, Dr. Waitley, and addressed her husband. Judge Burnham, will you have the kindness to excuse Erskine from the parlor? I would like to take him with me to my room. Certainly, my dear, the gentleman said, his voice perfectly quiet and he called Erskine in his usual tone, kissed him graciously, and told him Mama wanted him now, then attended his wife quite to the door, and held it open for her to pass, bowing as she did so, and he was never more angry in his life. Poor Mrs. Burnham, of all that embarrassed company below stairs, and I will do them the justice of saying that they were embarrassed, I think none were so much to be pitied as the angry and humiliated woman alone in her room, struggling with her passion and her sense of shame, and trying to appear as usual before the excited boy, who was by no means ready to leave the parlors and come back to the quiet of this upper world. Why could I not have stayed, Mamma? Papa liked to have me there, and they all did, I think. Seraph kissed me and said it was nice to have a little boy to put her arm around. And I was good. I didn't talk at all, only when somebody asked me something. Mama, I wish I could go back just for a little while. It is lonesome up here, and I wanted to hear them sing. Seraph was just going to sing when you came in. Poor mother! If this baby could only have given her kisses just then, instead of coaxing to go away from her, it would have helped. It was an afternoon to remember. Poor Ruth was destined to realize fully that one may shut the doors with emphasis against tangible guests, and yet receive a whole troop of miscreants into one's heart to make havoc with holy time. As the storm of passion subsided, 
she had that hardest of all feelings to contend with, self-reproach. Reason, being allowed once more to take her seat, accused this Christian woman of having yielded, not to conscience, but to rage. Possessed with this controlling influence, she had offered to her husband's guest what he would consider an insult. She had not only given him an utterly false idea of religion and its power over the human heart, but she had offended her husband, and justly. Perhaps this was really the worst sting in Ruth's sore heart, that her husband would be justified in utterly condemning her action also. And herein lay the real point of the sting, for at heart this woman was loyal. She knew the unbelieving husband would attribute the action to her religion, and persist in doing so, when she realized only too well that it was the outburst of a moment's ungovernable indignation. End of chapter 7 Recording by Tricia G.